Welcome to Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. And next time, next week, I'll be saying, Welcome to spring. Not too long to go now. But before that, does the US intend to end their war in Afghanistan? Peace activist Brian Terrell will explain why he believes it. they are not. Journalist and author David Marr looks back to Tampaton and comparing it to today. Bob Phelps, how GMOs are helping to destroy the Amazon. Nick McClellan as the third referendum for independence in New Caledonia draws closer. And compliance rather than compassion with Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees. But first, here he is, Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane Lister, when it took just two weeks for this week. Uh, let me explain that. Two weeks ago, when we reported on the UN of the US of the UN of the World Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, if there is such a thing, we praised big, big fossil wood side with profits, among other fossils, for suggesting as a response that the government provide corporate welfare, well, even more corporate welfare, for fossils beyond the actual amount of fossil power used. And this week, surprise, surprise, the government's Minister for Fossils, Angus Tailings, announced this brilliant new policy. We will provide corporate welfare for fossils beyond the actual amount of fossil power used. Gee, where'd that come from? Put simply in Thursday's True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review P1 headline, coal will be paid to firm up the grid. What a brilliant response to a call for urgent action to prevent fossil pollution. Pay them to keep polluting, subsidise fossils to even greater levels, far, far, far greater levels than the corporate fossil subsidised both the caring business class and socialist parties through generous donations so the parties can make important decisions like subsidising fossils. And don't forget that other minister responsible for coal, gas and other struggling industries, Keith Pitpony, announced a few weeks ago that renewable energy was now mature enough not to require any government support. Well, it's been around for a couple of decades, whereas poor old King Coal has only been around doing its bit for the environment for a few centuries. Clearly too immature to survive without a bit of support from the bloated, inefficient public purse. And also don't forget, this is a government that says it's meeting its climate commitments in a canter. Let's hope it doesn't get into a gallop or the, or the world will end even sooner than it will under current policies. In one of those, a bit more explanation might have helped comments, Angus asserted that providing even more corporate welfare to keep coal and gas-fired fossil power going longer and longer was the best way to encourage more investment in renewables. Angus, we, we wouldn't mind if you could give us just a little more detail on how that one works out. And we wish people for whom the frying of the planet is no business of theirs would mind their own business. Like former European Trade Commissioner Cecilia Malmström speaking from Sweden Wednesday at a virtual forum hosted by the Trublewazi Institute, whose, the Institute's, long-haired commie greenie bias is notorious. The big supremo scuttle them more less than a.k.a. scummo government was becoming more and more isolated over its carbon policy, she raved. Why would anyone think that? Obviously oblivious to or refusing to accept the magnificent way we are meeting our target in a canter. 
saying that because we refuse to tax, or more correctly, price carbon, True Blue Aussie will be subject to the carbon border adjustment taxes Europe plans to impose. Leading Deputy Big Supremo and Hayseed and Cheapshit Party Supremo Barnacle and Minister for Capitalist Trade Dan T and Carbon to attack the proposal as protectionist. Uh, so you're against protectionism? Absolutely. Absolutely. Except when we're protecting coal and carbon. Look, I think Cecilia's just got it in for Trubley Wazzy because she was the losing candidate when former Minister for the Capitalist Economy, Matthias Rotten Tuther, was appointed head of the OECD. And the long-haired commie mob make this ludicrous argument that if Trubley Wazzy introduced its own carbon price, which former big supremo tiny a bit more for the bosses abolished and dismissed as a great big new tax, a great big new tax, because he knows climate change is crap, if the income would flow into true blue Aussie public coffers rather than European coffers or other nations considering imposing a levy on true blue Aussie imports, and then, of course, true blue Aussie would have more in the public coffers to provide corporate welfare for the fossils. Win, win. Meanwhile, Scummo and his team and New South Wales Supremo Gladys Berridge lock him in announced there was no need to lock him in because Scummo has a plan, a very good plan, a plan. You have a plan, don't you? I have a plan, a very good plan, a very, very good plan. So it's a plan. It is a plan this country can be proud of. See, Scuttle Them and Gladys are accepting the considered advice of the caring business class that we could all enjoy the pleasures of business as usual with COVID and the Delta strain running riot once enough of us have the jab. No need to reduce the number of infections, but a desperate need to reduce the impediments to business as usual. And they would make special arrangements for all those who catch the virus and special, special arrangements for all those who die. It puzzles me why anyone would go against a plan that has been so carefully prepared, Scuttle them said, pulling a serviette covered in scribble and squiggles from his pocket to prove his point. But the coup de grace was delivered by our old mate Trubler was the industry profits group supremo Innes Will Cost the Workers, who explained just how much investment was not being invested because of these bloody lockdowns. We just have to learn to live with it, he made a strong argument, and we assume those who extol us to live with it don't see themselves as the ones being on the receiving end of the very, very special arrangements for those who die with it. Anyway, just in case it hasn't yet sunk in, Scummo has a plan. U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, big supremo Joe Biden with capital, also has a plan for the smooth retreat from Afghanistan, having spent 20 years liberating the people and bringing them the delights of liberty, freedom and democracy. Matching scuttled them in the fabulous success of his plan of 20 years of slaughter and destruction, exemplified by all these poor desperates trying to flee the country, literally standing deep in shit, or, or raw sewage, as the mainstream media puts it much more nicely. And then, to put it nicely, that sewage hit the fan, the proverbial hit the fan, as one faction of Allah be praised, God willing, blew up the desperates attempting to flee 20 years of liberation, along with members of another faction of Allah be praised, God willing, 
and infidels, U.S. armed train killers, God bless America, all acting in the name of their respective gods and messiahs. Love thy neighbor. And Joe said, God bless America, would not forgive, would not forget, would hunt the LRB praise lot down without explaining how. A 20-year regression, slow, slow learners. And putting it not so nicely, former Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country, Big Supremo Tiny Blyer, angrily described Joe's withdrawal as imbecilic. Look, if he wants some consolation, let's assure him, Tiny, it's nowhere near as imbecilic as the coalition of the killing invasion in the first place. Apparently, 20 years of slaughter and destruction wasn't quite enough slaughter and destruction for Tiny, who attacked the depolitization of US of foreign policy. So obviously, when Tiny, a little bald-headed bloke who used to be big supremo back here in those dark ages, followed then US of supremo George W. Bash the workers' orders to invade Afghanistan, because all these Saudis had upset the US of, there was nothing political about it. It's a common retort of those whose occupation is, in parenthesis, politician, isn't it, when anyone criticises them. You're being political. You're bringing politics into it. Clearly, politics has no place in politics. Speaking of, and speaking of plans, state-caring business class Supremo Brackett's temporary and would-be big state Supremo Michael Nobrain said he would promise a plan for hope. And spot on, Michael, it's, all, it's already working because we're all hoping and pretty, co- pretty confidently too. Maybe that's what he means. He hopes he wins before that he's got a hope he's still there. Michael's the bloke with the robotic button inserted into his chest, which when pressed repeats, this is not good enough, 123 times. Although he attacked the pejorative Dan government for the not good enough state debt, whose repayments he said could fund lots of nurses and teachers. Uh, So you oppose the state providing support for caring businesses during lockdown, Michael? Certainly not. The level of support is, as he reached for his chest, not good enough. It must be increased. Uh, but, But all that corporate welfare is a major contributor to the, to the debt, and that debt is not good enough. Then which one do you support? I don't follow. Your question is, hang on, at this Michael reached for his chest again, not good enough. Finally, also not good enough, these bloody maritime workers taking strike action just because their caring employers won't budge on the need to slash their wages, their conditions, their overtime payments, increase casualisation, that sort of thing, with the caring employers attacking the irresponsible evil unions for causing disruption during a pandemic, depriving the community of vital goods, showing how the caring employers are so community-minded, while the evil unions, well, what can we say? Clearly it is the workers' fault that the poor caring employers won't negotiate. The disruption, disruption, nothing whatever to do with them. They, poor dears, just want a non-level playing field. Good afternoon. And as usual, you can hear more of Mr Kevin Healy tomorrow morning with City Limits at 9am. The 
The Maritime Union of Australia is pleased to announce the Struggles That Made Us poster design prize. With a five grand first prize, the MUA is calling for submissions of a poster or artwork that addresses or is inspired by the struggles, events or historical figures amongst Australian maritime workers. The winning design will be launched on May Day 2022 and featured in a special May Day edition of Overland magazine. So get amongst it, people. Jump online and search for MUA Design Prize to enter. The Maritime Union of Australia is a proud 3CR supporter. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. The agony of the Afghan people continues a country no stranger to attacks and occupations over centuries, and now the US and their allies, including Australia, preparing to leave, leaving those who remain, the people of Afghanistan, to an uncertain future. Over the past 20 years, a number of Westerners have worked with young people in Afghanistan to foster peace, justice and development, and one is Brian Terrell, member of the now disbanded Voices for Creative Nonviolence and continuing as an anti-war and peace activist. Brian, your first visit to Afghanistan was in 2010. Were there attempts to get there prior to that? Voices for Creative Nonviolence have had, I think, one previous trip before this. Uh, Kathy Kelly and others made some connections with, with some people in, in, in Afghanistan one of the things that we did and that, that, that really uh, formed what our, the shape of our delegation, and there were about, I think, a dozen of us, is there was a partnership uh, of NGOs, both foreign ones and Afghan-based groups, that uh, put out a very, really stunning document. Um, Oxfam was, the, uh, was kind of the convener of this, called Nowhere to Turn. And it was talking back then about how the United States and NATO reconstruction programs were actually endangering the people of Afghanistan and also the, the, the organizations and people who are trying to help them by blurring the line between what is military and what is humanitarian. You know, most Americans realize that. We see the cynicism when a group like the Taliban sets up a clinic or starts feeding the hungry. That's uh, using the military, military to, to win hearts and minds. But what happened in reality is those people who would go to the 
Taliban clinic would be often be visited by U.S. Marines in a night raid, and people would be disappearing. And the same thing happened the other way, where the United States would be setting up you know, good-hearted people with good intentions coming from the United States in the military with military uniforms and setting up a medical clinic or a dental clinic, setting up uh, uh, an agricultural station, helping supposedly helping people with helping farmers uh, get seeds and plant their crops. But it left the people with nowhere to turn because, you know, those people who would avail themselves of this help would then be in danger from the, from the insurgencies. So it's kind of counterintuitive. There's something in us that likes to think, you know, that, that I, I, like I see, we've seen pictures just lately that uh, are both touching and horrifying about American soldiers holding Afghan babies. And it's just uh, the exploitation of those children and of the soldiers. You know, it's, it's meant to be heartwarming, but having been there and seeing the, the, the realization that it was, that it's really kind of horrifying. But a big difference, my last visit, I've been there seven times. My last time was in 2017, or 2018. That first time we were there, we were able to go with about a dozen people and stay in a hotel and rent a van be very, very open, get on the telephone and make appointments talking with these human rights groups. And we talked to journalists and things. We, you know, we met people in restaurants. And uh, just a few late, years later, all of that was just impossible. You know, we went After that, we went one person, two people at a time, keeping a very, very low profile. Because as the, the occupation went on, uh, life there just got more fraught and more dangerous. So whatever glimmers of hope we saw back in 2010 where just a few years later we're you know we're gone everything's focusing around the the airport in Kabul and I've been in and out of there several times I, I see in my mind's eye where all this is going on and I remember it was back in 2017 I believe it was the day after I arrived that I saw the New York Times had an article that said the U.S. Embassy was had given instructions that none of their workers were allowed to be on the road from the airport to the embassy. It's only about a mile and a half, but that was considered just, just too dangerous. Uh, so entering the, you know, the airport then, you know, the, these, these walls, these gates where these attacks have happened are probably at least a quarter of a mile away from the airport proper because they would stop you. It would be like entering a maximum security prison stop and frisk you check under your car, the car of your, under your taxi before you even get within, you can see where you can see the airport. Uh, the security was so high and it was clearly a flashpoint. And I remember my last visit in 2018, uh, when I was leaving the airport, there were many Westerners on the flight from Dubai into Kabul. And as I went through passport control and picked up my bag and went through customs, I was the only Westerner who left the airport through the front door into the parking lot through the front gate into the parking lot to meet my friends uh, who were picking me up in a taxi everybody else all these contractors and I'm assuming government workers embassy and consulate staffs NGO people from the United States from the Australia from UK from Germany they were all getting on helicopters from the airport and flying to the heliports inside their heavily fortified places. So it's always been a very dangerous situation there. 
talk about your friends that you've made over those eight, nine years. The reality of Kabul was a city of just a few hundred thousand before the Civil War, before the United States invaded. And about that time, it might have been two million. And now it's like six million. Every time I'd visit, I'd see the uh, adobe hut going up the sides of the of the mountains, cobbles in a Hindu Kush valley. Almost everybody in Kabul, the vast majority of people, are already refugees from other places. As dangerous as Kabul has been and is, there are still people trying to get there because it's safer. Many of the provinces where they were where people lived. And it's heartbreaking. Almost everyone, almost every Afghan I would talk to would tell me that their home is the most beautiful place on earth. And they would leave these um, lush, beautiful places to be in one of the, you know, um, Kabul was a very beautiful, elegant city in the 70s, 1970s and the 1980s. They were calling it the uh, Paris of, uh, of uh, South Asia. It's a very elegant place, but now it's just, you know, it's, it's a very squalid, crowded slum. The, my last couple of visits, just hearing 24 hours, the clang of these pile drivers pushing uh, wells deeper and deeper into the earth because the water table, both with the, with the overpopulation and with the climate change and the sn- interrupting the snows that would fall on the Hindu Kush mountains, the water table was sinking uh, several meters every week, every year. So just to, just to get the water. So you know, the people that I met, that I spent most time with the Afghan peace volunteers, mostly very, very young men and women. One of the interesting things is that it, that it was ethnically diverse. And that's a very rare thing in Afghanistan. It's a terrible thing about what war and privation does is it makes people more tribal. People don't think about opening up and trusting people other than themselves and other than their families. When there are severe shortages, when people are living in fear, that makes people close in. So the fact that these young people would be open to um, embracing ethnicities not their own and religions not their own, pretty homogeneous, but the, the, the uh, of Islam, but the Hazaras are Shia and have been very much persecuted and are, are suffering very much today because the Taliban is uh, very much a very rigid fundamentalist that uh, distrust the, the Shia. Hazaras have a very hard, hard time and, and, and will be now. And they did uh, schools for homeless children. The, the street kids uh, worked on uh, integrating, you know, uh, not only ethnically, but also they would have tried to work on women's women's rights and and human rights and teaching children the the basics of of human rights. I remember one time I was in a class. I had a friend translating for me from Dari, but a couple young men were like sixteen or seventeen years old talking to a whole room full of kids who were like eight, nine, and ten years old and explaining the UN Universal Declaration on Human Rights. Seeing these kids just wrapped, you know, just hanging on this, and hearing these young men just slightly older than themselves explaining how they have rights. Now things should not be the way they are. And I think about that of times 
Universal Declaration of Human Rights is a treaty that the United States has, has entered into and by such is, uh, according to the U.S. Constitution, supreme law of the land. But I remember hearing, listening to these young men explain to these children what this was about and how attentive they were that I have tried to raise the issue of the, human, of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in courtrooms and have had uh, American judges and jurists and prosecutors just kind of laugh at me. This is uh, ignoring it completely. So what's happening now is, is it's, it's tragic. The United States really failing deeply at even getting the people who have been um, translators and other workers for the, for the embassies, for the U.S. Embassy and, and working with the U.S. military people who they they promised safe haven, uh, something that could have been started a long time ago. You know, I think our friends are in great danger, apparently, but there isn't any, you know, there, there, there doesn't appear to be any way that the U.S. government or the others are going to be able to help them out. But I don't see that as the, as the main issue that we should be going after, that there are 38 million people in Afghanistan. The median age is 18 years and four months. Uh, this war has been going on for more than 20 years. We have really destroyed 20 years of occupation and war and corruption and you know, so, you know, imposing on, on them a government that's so corrupt and so unpopular that as much as people hate the Taliban, nobody was willing, even their own soldiers, to make any effort to protect it, to keep the Taliban from coming in because of this, you know, the government we gave them, such a burden on, on the people. But we owe the United States and the other countries who are part of this so-called coalition of the willing, owes, you know, reparations, needs to help you know, every single person there. Uh, as President Biden said, on Thursday after the, after the suicide bomb at the, at the airport, what he said, uh, you know, to those who carried out this attack, as well as anyone who wishes America harm, know this, we will not forgive, we will not forget. We will hunt you down and make you pay. Now, probably nobody in Afghanistan would wish America any harm, if not for, you know, what we've done to them. And they should be given reparations. One of the horrible things about Afghanistan is that the years I visited, seeing things just get worse and worse. Billions of dollars were spent. The, uh, there's a special inspector general for the reconstruction of Afghanistan. These last several years, so the U.S. government office uh, auditing the, uh, the so-called reconstruction of Afghanistan. And the United States spent more money since 2001, supposedly, on the reconstruction of Afghanistan than the entire Marshall Plan that rebuilt so many cities in Western Europe after World War II that had been destroyed by mainly U.S. and Britain, British bombing raids, uh, but rebuilt those cities, you know, repaired so much. And more money was spent in Afghanistan, but it's the infrastructure those years only, only got worse. This inspector general looked for hospitals that the U.S. government claimed that it had built USAID, and they could not find the hospitals. They could not find schools. 
they, these were ghosts. They, they existed only on paper. And there were a lot of Afghans that they got rich who took advantage of this. And many of the, the, the ruling class escaped with uh, big bags of money and they had already had money offshore waiting for this to happen. But really the vast majority of that money went to American contractors, uh, the arms manufacturers, uh, the weapons makers. There's a lot of responsibility to go around, but the, but the main corruption, you know, the, the biggest thieves are American corporations. What did the the women of Afghanistan gain out of that occupation? I don't want to minimize the small gains, but they can't be exaggerated either. And the credit to them has to be given to Afghan women and not to the occupation or to the government. One terrible, one thing, my, my first visit to Afghanistan, we were, again, we were able then to, to openly meet with human just before our, that trip, there was the U.S. big news magazine, Time magazine, had a very lurid and tragic cover of a, of a young woman looking at the camera, attractive young woman whose nose had been cut off in an honor of events, you know, because of, she had offended the honor of her husband or her father or something. The caption on it was why we have to stay in Afghanistan. Afghan women's groups who were furious at that because that event happened, that horrible event happened in an area that was totally under the control of the United States and the Afghan government. This was, did not happen under the Taliban. This happened under the government that we had, the United States was, was propping up. There isn't much light between many of the people in the Afghan government that was just just ousted in the in the Taliban. Marlai Joya was somebody that, that, that we met with, and she's a former parliamentarian in Afghanistan and somebody speaking for women's rights. She is no friend of the Taliban, but she insisted, insists now that the Afghan people have three main enemies, and it's the U.S. occupation, the Afghan government, and the, and the Taliban. And he said when the U.S. leaves, I think she predicted this as well as anybody else, this is the horror show that's going on now, but saying the real difference is that there's uh, one less enemy. But besides that, the, 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 the progress, that any progress that there might have been has been in Kabul and some of the other large cities. You know, most of the people in the countryside had had not seen very much. Over those years that you went to Afghanistan, did you manage to go to any of those places? The only time I was able to leave the vicinity of Kabul, um, as I said, it, 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 most of the provinces were quite dangerous. I did visit the Panjshir Valley, breathtakingly beautiful, and the air was clean and the water. You know, we ate fish caught right out of the river. There are no fish in the Kabul River in, in the city of Kabul anymore. It's, it's, a, it's, it's an open sewer. It's all that it is. And people used to swim there and wash their clothes in it. That, that's long gone. Right now, it's the only area where the Taliban uh, is not in control. The one thing I remember friends I was staying with were trying to rebuild what, what these 
I said the air and the water were so pure, but but it also looked like a desert, and that there was so little tree, few trees, and so little that was green. Before the Soviet invasion in 1979, it was very very green. It was a big center for fruit and almonds and and nuts, and all those trees were destroyed in that war. So they were trying to rebuild from, from that and to, to replant the trees. But I remember walking in the mountains over the river, over the valley, a place where there had been a uh, Soviet military base and that there were abandoned tanks and other weaponry still around. And there were also stones that were marked with spray paints saying that the area had been clear of mines, landmines. It was very reassuring. Uh, but even getting away from the base, overlooking the river, just pick up hands full of gravel and the gravel was mixed with every handful you'd pick up would have at least one shell from a Soviet, uh, spent Soviet bullet. And it really brought home what the war has been, what the history has been. And I think a piece of history that needs to be remembered. And as uh, many Americans think about President Jimmy Carter, a much more innocent time, even the Soviet invasion is the responsibility of the United States, not to let them off the hook at all. But the United States had, you know, people from the Carter administration, including Zbigniew Brzezinski, who was the national security advisor, later bragged that uh, it was the United States that ended the Soviet Union because and it was by luring them in, into Afghanistan. There was a government there that was not to say that it's perfect. There, there isn't one but a, a very uh, progressive government and one that uh, was very popular with the people. And in talking about women's rights, this was the time, this was the best time for women, women's rights in, in Afghanistan was in the uh, late 70s and the early, the late 70s and early 80s. At the time the Soviets invaded, you know, the universities were just about half of the enrollment were women. Kabul and other metropolitan areas, you know, the, the rules that came in later about uh, you know, the burqa and such were, you know, did not exist. But Zbigniew Brzezinski said that when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, the real story is the United States was shoring up. Was, we've been told, our history books tell us, that, that the Soviets invaded and the United States came to the help of the Mujahideen, who later became al-Qaeda, and later became the Taliban, and gave them arms and weapons and money and diplomatic support. This actually happened the other way around, that the, the support for the Mujahideen started and then the Soviets invaded. And uh, Brzezinski called up President Carter and said, we have just delivered the Soviets their Vietnam, meaning put the Soviets into position once they got into that quagmire, it was going to bring them down. And he said, sure enough, 10 years later, the Soviet Union was history. So we've been there for 20 years. We've survived our occupation of Afghanistan longer than the Soviets had, but it really is, it really is bringing us down, and it's really showing the weaknesses. I'm very afraid at this time that the United States is being embarrassed, and the, all of our weaponry, the most sophisticated military in the world, in 20 years wasn't able to beat one of the most ragtag, undisciplined you know, group of guerrillas with very little popular support. We just can't do it. All, all we're doing with the military, this military might is enriching the investors and it's not making the United States safer. 
we're seeing a, uh, uh, you know, what Gandhi said about, talked about a cycle of violence. I think he was describing something that is a law that says immutable is a law of gravity. Is uh, like we see this on uh, Thursday, supposedly ISIS-K carried out a suicide bombing at the airport at Kabul. And that very day, the president says, at the time we choose, and the place we choose, we will attack you. We're coming after you. So it was the next day that, that a um, drone, the province's uh, missile from a drone, supposedly killed some of the planners of ISIS-K. People on the ground report that uh, there were women and children killed. The U.S. military, of course, says they don't know of any civilian casualties, but they're not on the ground. They're just flying these drones around. And we know from uh, whistleblower Daniel Hale, who's now in prison for telling us some of the truth about drones, is that fewer than 90% of the people they've killed in Afghanistan by drones have been the intended targets. But even the intended targets are often people, uh, you know, based on the very slightest evidence. It's, it's extrajudicial executions that they've been doing. And what, and what they did on, on Friday, even if they did kill some people with, uh, in ISIS, none of them had been formally accused, much less convicted of a crime. But in any case, they, they had to say right away, there will be repercussions. There, there will be retribution. And they asked people, the U.S. government embassy put out a warning saying that U.S. citizens, who they say they're trying to evacuate, should leave the airport in the vicinity immediately and warned other people, don't, don't go to the airport because there's going to be another, they're going to hit again because we did this. If, as Biden says, we will pick the time and place if they really wanted to efficiently evacuate as many people as possible, they would have waited for that strike. And of course, then now we hear today that there was a, uh, another drone hit a vehicle that was carrying bombs toward the, toward the airport. I don't know the truth of that right now, but in any case, everybody knows this is setting up for more acts of terror. Back, I think it's 2015 or 16, uh, General Stanley McChrystal, who was the head of NATO forces, American general, head of NATO forces in Afghanistan, he put it mathematically. He said, for every one we kill with these drone strikes, we create 10 enemies, which sounds counterproductive if what you're trying to do is produce stability and peace, if your concern was for the people of Afghanistan and concern for the safety even of American citizens, it would seem counterproductive. But for Raytheon or Rockwell International, you are making the bombs and missiles and making the drones. The idea of creating 10 new enemies for everyone you kill, it sounds good. And what, what's happened in, with the arms manufacturers in the United States is if you had invested $10,000 in one of these big weapons manufacturers in 2001, your investment would be worth 100000 today. So more than tenfold return. There's no other investment that you could do that. I think what we're seeing now with, with the Biden administration's actions, it's doing specifically, uh, there's all brave talk about avenging the, the deaths of, of the American soldiers who were killed and talk about how we will destroy the ISIS, which but ISIS did not exist before the United States invaded Afghanistan and Iraq 
Al-Qaeda did not exist before the United States armed the Mujahideen to fight the Soviets in Afghanistan. These people aren't stupid. They're, this is not, these are not really failures. This is not an attempt of nation building. I think many of the individuals, soldiers and diplomats, maybe even some of the contractors sucked into this, might believe it, might be honest and, and sincere in trying to make, make things better. But they're doing exactly what we'll do to, to exacerbate the, the problem, to keep the pot stirred. This, uh, Julian Assange said, and Hataruddin Roy said it too, I think echoing George Orwell, saying that from 2001, this war was never intended to be won, never intended to be resolved. But it's a war that's meant to be maintained and prolonged. So many times the United States have had the chance end this from before the United States invaded when, when the uh, Taliban was willing to turn Osama bin Laden over to a third country to November of 2001, you know, just over a month after the U.S. invaded, the Taliban was willing to surrender with only one condition of amnesty and turn over Osama bin Laden to the United States. And the United States refused that offer because we didn't want peace. We didn't want to avenge the architects of the 9-11 attack. It was war and the money that, go, that goes with it, the United States was after, and that still is the case. There are all these different administrations, the different rhetoric. Biden sounds different than Trump, who sounded very different from Obama, who sounded different from Bush. This heartbreaking, this, this and it's more horrible in the deliberateness of it, that the U.S. is not going to let this war end. And I was speaking with anti-war activist Brian Terrell. The media in this country, we as Indigenous people know, have censored our right of telling the truth and the truth is what this country is most fearful of, in particular Indigenous truths. Until history is told by the vanquished lens, which is our people telling our story our way, and have the right to be able to incorporate that into a system of learning, well, people are always going to be denied that truth by deceit and lies. When you look at the type of psychological warfare and spiritual warfare that Aboriginal people are caught in, it's not just in the sense of military when they talk about weapons of mass destruction, but you're right, it's in terms of the media and the industry of media as a warfare against our people, and so is religion, I believe, in the Western sense. They're, they're all weapons of mass destruction against our, our people. We need to keep Radical Voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. You can easily think of a number of areas and issues today which make many of us ashamed to call ourselves Australians, whether it be our government's attitude to and non action on climate change, involvement in US wars in an increasing number of countries, but today it's the end result of those wars, refugees and asylum seekers, and the consistent and shameful attitude to those forced to risk their lives to gain sanctuary in this country in ways which the government deem are illegal. 
and the blatant racism, unfortunately, can be seen today as desperate people who work for Australian forces in Afghanistan see refuge in vain in many cases. Today we look to where it all began in 2001 under the government of John Howard, the Liberal National Government, and supported by the opposition under Kim Beasley. David Ma is an investigative reporter, journalist and human rights activist and has been writing about this to this day as we relive Tampa Times. David, take us back to the later part of 2001 in the lead up to the federal election on the 10th of November. What was the government's policy on asylum seekers reaching Australian shores and how was it enacted? What people now forget, looking back, is that in 2001, in the middle of 2001, Pauline Hanson destroyed Conservatives in Queensland. Her interference in that election, her naked race-based politics, absolutely naked race-based politics, delivered Labor its best victory in Queensland for 60 years. The Conservatives were terrified of losing the race vote. Now, that vote is always there in the community. It varies between about 15-20% of the community. And the question always is, will mainstream political parties play for it? And how it was, he was going to get it out of Pauline Hanson's hands. And the Tampa operation was about votes. He was facing an election later in the year himself, and... My view and the view of Marion Wilkinson, we between us wrote a book about this called Dark Victory. We both believe, and other analysts at the time, that he was going to win that election at the end of the year anyway. But he was scared. He wanted to make that win certain. And that's why he mounted the tamper operation. It was about votes. Can you explain what happened? Jen, I was absolutely startled the other day. I was t- talking to the a first-year university son of great friends of mine, and, I, and he said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm writing about the Tampa. And he said, what's the Tampa? And I thought, yep, there's a generation grown up since these events. From the Vietnam War onwards, from the, the end of the Vietnam War, something unique happened in Australia Refugees started to come here under their own steam in small boats and reach Australia. Never happened before. Terrifying for some people. And the numbers that came, Rosenfeld, Rosenfeld, and Australia decided that it was going to do something pretty much unique in the world, which is it was going to imprison all of these uh, refugees as they arrived. And the argument was um, that they were being um, detained for processing. It was a very cumbersome, very expensive system, and it could only take a very small number of people. In 2001, the number of people that had arrived by, by the middle of the year was about 2,000, and it was, that was pretty much a record. It was a small number of people. I mean, we were taking tens of thousands of migrants, but for the system we had, it was terribly difficult. Then there were all of these looming race election problems. And then, in August, the Australian government decided that it would not rescue this little boat, the Palapa, 
that had left Indonesia. They didn't know how many people were on board. They knew that it was grossly overcrowded and they knew that it, was, that it had lost power. Coast Guard planes went overhead, saw people jumping up and down on the roof to attract their attention. They saw people trying to row the boat, paddle the boat with deck boards. But Australia did not call for its rescue. They knew that a storm was coming. This is what sticks in my craw every time I hear these people still saying it was about saving lives at sea. Instead of rescuing the boat, they tried to do something they knew would be futile, which was Indonesia to do the rescue for itself. The boat, the boat was only 100k from Christmas Island. It was a long way off to Indonesia, and the Indonesians didn't. That night, there was a huge storm. The boat survived the storm by a miracle. It was breaking up. A hole appeared in the hull. One man shoved his bum in that hole to stop the water pouring in. The pumps were still working. They were barely able to manage, but they got through the night. The plane came back overhead, and somebody by this time had smeared the word help on a scarf with engine oil and held it up. And the plane, you know, these are decent Coast Watch people. The plane said, you know, this is unequivocal. They need help. So Australia did what it should have done the day before, which was to ask a passing ship to go and pick these people up. And the passing ship was this huge Norwegian container ship, the Tampa, captained by Arne Rinnen. And, of course, and there's a wonderful new book that has just appeared about all of this by one of the kids on board the Palapa. It's called After the Tampa by Abbas Nazari. And he talks about the excitement on the boat when they saw this red dot on the horizon which turned into an immense container ship, which very, very, very gently pulled up alongside and got everybody off. And almost the minute the last person had climbed up the ladder, Abbas was seven years old that day, almost at that minute, the Palapa just gave up the ghost, broke up and sank. So 438 people were rescued. About five of them were crew, the rest were refugees. In the normal course of events, that ship would have been allowed to go to the nearest port to unload the people rescued. The nearest port was Christmas Island, and the Australians said, don't go to Christmas Island. We've arranged for you to unload these people in the Indonesian port of Merak, which on your voyage you were going to pass anyway. And so... The captain said, it seemed a bit odd to him, but okay, he would um, sail on to Marak and drop the people there. Now, again, when people talk about saving lives at sea, there are two reasons so many refugees die in little boats, whether it's on the Mediterranean or the Aegean or the South China Seas or the Indian Ocean. It is because shipping lines know that it can be an absolute bugger to get people off. They can rescue them. A lot of money getting people off. And that's why boats sail on by. Knowing the commercial inconvenience of rescue is why so many people are left to die still.
Can I just say to you that Arnie and his crew went beyond what was expected of them as a crew and a captain, didn't they? The way they looked after those people on the boat. If the nearest boat had been an American liner or a Japanese, this story would have been a little bit different. This was a Norwegian liner which had been trading in a small but very prosperous way with Australia for over a century. And they had their commercial future to consider, and they played it by the book perfectly. They decided, however, that they would treat the people they rescued simply as people rescued and not as refugees. They drew a line, and Rinan behaved with the most perfect understanding of the rules of the sea. All of these people were brought onto the boat as they were somehow or other. They outnumbered the crew on the Tampa, 16 to 1. The, the crew on the Tampa fed them. They set up primitive latrines. They opened up empty containers for them to sleep in. They were wonderful. They were really, really wonderful. And crucial when a delegation of refugees came to them and said, look, Morocco is where we came from. We've been through this Australia, and the people will commit suicide if it, you know, if it's if we're going back to where we came from. And Rinan very, very decently decided that he would turn the ship around and head for Christmas Island. And he said to everybody on the boat, "You'll see the lights of Christmas Island by midnight, and all of the terrors on the deck died away, and people did what they could to sleep." And, and everything was calm. And this stage, the Australian government threatened Rinan and the shipping line with immense fines. And yet what the shipping line was, you know, it was, the, it was the highest rules of the sea. And Australia went berserk to try to stop them. There were many steps in this story, Jen, and it, and it takes a long time to tell, but at each step of the way, Australia proposed some new brutal measure carried those measures out for the last for the last part in order to stop these refugees landing on Christmas Island when Rinan needed medical help the medical help did not come so finally he hit a mayday which is which is an emergency the rules of the sea cannot be ignored and he took the ship into Christmas Island at which point it was occupied by the SAS in order to telegraph to the Australian people how dangerous these refugees were, Australia sent its most hardline combat units onto that ship display of danger. When was the story of the children overboard? So let's just park the Tampa there for a second on Christmas Island. When the election was actually called some weeks later, the boats were still coming. And one morning, there was a confrontation between an Australian naval vessel and when I say confrontation, there was a, you know, an Australian naval vessel there. And again, Australia was refusing to rescue. This was the new rule. We were refused to rescue. And... Somebody believed that they saw one of the refugees 
or maybe a couple of the refugees on this boat throw small children into the water, the rescue of those children by the Navy would have compelled the Navy to take them ashore in Australia. News of this got through to Australia immediately. The politician talked about these fiends on that boat. Fiends. Um, he didn't quite use that word, but that was his message. Um, throwing their children into the sea in order to be in order to be rescued and brought to Australia. Now, it was a mistake. The mistake was corrected that day. The elections were, I think, at this stage, something like two weeks off. The bureaucrats knew that it was a mistake, knew it was wrong, and all kinds of bizarre games were played backstage and for politicians to continue to use this, what they now knew to be a lie, to use this lie to demonise the refugees, even though the bureaucrats knew it was wrong. And there was a lack of courage on the part of many bureaucrats who simply did not do what they knew was not wanted, which was to correct the politicians. Now, I've simplified things a bit. It was quite complicated. But in the end, just before the election, some journalists were allowed to get close to um, an admiral. And they simply asked this admiral, were children thrown overboard? And he said, no. A big part of the management of the Tampa children overboard elections was to keep journalists away from the people who actually knew what was going on, in particular to keep them from the Tampa. The Tampa was completely closed to journalists, to keep them, if possible, from Christmas Island, to keep them away from the Navy. Um, but the children overboard is one of the really sordid lies of Australian politics in the last 50 years. Well, when you look at the years following that, it's not known how many boats sank, how many boats were turned away, how many people died at sea. No, it's not. Later on, Australia took um, a different course, which was to force boats back to Indonesia. Somehow they got the Indonesian authorities to agree to this. That is how you stop the boats coming. It's not by providing um, an example to the world of years and years and years of imprisonment if you try it. Um, it's not by making the voyages dangerous. It's by actually physically stopping them. And that, that's how the boat stopped. And, and of course, Scott Morrison was the Minister, Minister for Immigration um, who did that. But, of course, we don't know how many people died. We don't know how many boats went down. We know about, about many of them because... People had relatives who never turned up. But the exact scale of death out there, we don't know. Well, fast forward to Afghanistan in 2021. The Australian government has known since May that the US was pulling out. What has Australia done to assist those who helped them in that intervening period up to today? You have to understand that a big pledge to the Australian people, particularly from the Conservative side, but from Labor as well, is that we won't bring dangerous people to this country. And therefore, the 
business of bringing up people we owed an obligation to, we owed an obligation to protect, they'd helped us, we need now to help them, was always going to be done through the bureaucratic checking and rechecking of the Department of Immigration. Now, it isn't clear, and it will only become clear in time, the extent to which the simple business of just getting people out was delayed while we checked to see that they weren't dangerous. And you would have watched, no doubt, Peter Dutton the other night on television turn his mournful eyes camera and warn Australia that dangerous people might be amongst those who are trying to get into Kabul airport and onto an Australian plane. Well, you know, it's not completely impossible, but the notion that you would, as a terrorist, take that path to Australia is so unlikely that really and honestly to delay things in order to triple check the bona fides of, you know, the 16-year-old boy of the family, etc., 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 you could see the tamper imagination still at work here. But don't underestimate the extent to which the Taliban victory caught everybody by surprise. They thought they had a year or so to do this. They didn't. They were wrong, and I'm not excusing them. But they thought they had time. They thought they had time to do it the Australian way, and they did. I was speaking there with journalist and author David Ma. G'day, this is Jacob from the Friday Rave. If the week's politics have left you wondering whether it's you or the rest of the planet that's gone completely and utterly bonkers, join us at 5 o'clock each and every Friday for a Friday Rave here on 3CR, where we'll do our best to reassure you that it is actually you and us. A Friday Rave bringing the 5 o'clock drinks debrief to you here on Community Radio 3CR. The awful truth is there for all to see the massive and ongoing deforestation of the Amazon. Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network will link some of this to GM crops. I was involved last week in a, in a discussion about uh, whether or not genetically manipulated uh, foods, particularly crop plants and animals, are needed to feed the world. And so I did a bit of research on exactly where the GM crop plants have been grown around the world. And what we see is that um, most of them have been uh, in North and South America and particularly more recently in Brazil and Argentina, where a huge amount of the Amazon rainforest was cleared, particularly to grow genetically manipulated soybean, soybean that could be sprayed more often and at higher doses with Roundup herbicide in order to uh, make them more profitable and to try to spin out what has turned out to be a really stupid strategy. Of course, Monsanto was the main supplier of the genetically manipulated seeds, and by around about 2010, most of the GM soybean, corn, canola and cotton seed that they could sell was being sold each year to North American growers. So they needed a new market. And of course, South America was uh, perfect. Chop down the Amazon, grow genetically manipulated soybeans and corn, export it back to the USA. And, And that's exactly what happened on the pretext, of course, of feeding the world. But Nothing could be further from the truth. But the myth about the need for destroying forests 
and growing these commodities has persisted. When we dig into it a little bit, of course you find out that the soybeans and corn are not for human consumption at all. In fact, people are not eager to eat genetically manipulated foods at all. And as a result, the big demand is for biofuels and animal feed. A huge amount goes into uh, animal feedlots, a very large amount into biofuels as well, which of course has been the American strategy for getting off the oil bandwagon and being exposed, particularly in the Middle East, where supplies can sometimes get upset. Rather than feeding the world, what we see now is that uh, most of the production of genetically manipulated crops is actually not to feed people at all, but to run cars and to um, continue the very also damaging to the climate, to our soils, and to the way that we produce food. And that is, of course, uh, animal production. It's, it's so inefficient that at some point we're going to have to get off that bandwagon and already people are eating less meat, which is very good for the global environment, is a trend for the future. Of course, what happened in Latin America when the Amazon was, um, was cleared, um, a huge area, something like the area of New South Wales, was cleared to grow soybean and corn since 2010. Chopping down of the forest has continued. First Nations people were murdered and tortured and expelled from their ancestral lands. A lot of rural villages were destroyed. The environmental destruction, of course, was huge as well, not only on a local basis, but on a global basis, contributing to global climate changes. The carbon stored in those um, ancient uh, rainforests was released into the atmosphere. Another thing that comes out of that kind of destruction, of course, as we've seen with COVID, is that Diseases can jump out of the environment and get into the human population. And that's precisely, of course, what happened in the destruction of the Amazon as well. Up until October 2015, the Zika virus, which was already known in certain places around the world and was also in Latin America, an insect-borne virus that uh, can spread among communities, in October 2015, it was suddenly observed that hundreds of pregnant women in northeast Brazil, which is where the forests had been cleared, were infected with the virus. Many of the babies that were born as a result of their pregnancies suffered microcephaly, which is uh, a severe disorder where the brain has incomplete development and the children born are very, very seriously disabled, intellectually disabled. And there were hundreds of these children born at that time. Of course, the alert was about the public health. But if we look back into it, the pretext of growing these genetically manipulated soybean and corn crops and exporting them to North America was the driver that um, allowed this virus to take hold. Of course, the whole thing in the longer term has been pretty much of a failure as well. And what we see is that... Uh, Many of those lands uh, where the forests were cleared after only 20 years, around 30% of that acreage is now reverting back to, to second growth forest because the farmers have simply walked off. Those soils are so fragile and really nutrient poor that it was only for a short time that they were suitable for growing 
soybean and corn, they've simply reverted to forest, which of course is uh, relatively speaking an inefficient way of storing carbon. We would have been much better off to have left the old growth forest in place originally. The sort of argument, of course, that's been had in Tasmania for years where the old growth forests are torn down to make paper for export wood chips to Japan for very little return. Of course, the second growth forest there is similarly rather poor quality and really negatively contributes to global climate change as well uh, with the release of greenhouse gases. Far from feeding the world, as claimed, the growing in North and South America of genetically manipulated soybean in particular, making Brazil the biggest soybean producer in the world, has been an ecological and humanitarian disaster as well. And the whole thing is based on a myth. The United Nations Rapporteur on the Right to Food, the Food and Agriculture Organization and other well-informed groups around the world confirm that there is actually no absolute shortage of food at the moment. The amount of food produced in the world is enough to feed around 10 billion people. Certainly the human population is over 7 billion. But when a lot of that food production is going into inefficient feedlot animal feed and into biofuels and into other industrial uses, you can see that the thing is really a mythology that's driving that the genetic manipulation industry, which is now Bayer, which bought Monsanto a couple of years ago, is still driving to try to sell its seed products, the genetically manipulated seeds, which uh, Bayer now dominates, are being sold not around the world, but still very much in those North and South American countries and not for human food. It's the wars, social disruption, and the policies of government that need to change uh, so that people can actually afford the balanced diets to which they're entitled. The UN, of course, asserts that every, every individual on the planet has the right to food, and yet we've got over 800 million people hungry and malnourished, while uh, in the global north we've got uh, something like 2 billion people overfed, obese, and really being fed rather poor diets. Uh, one of the noticeable things there is, uh, for instance, the uh, high fructose corn syrup, which comes out of those same production systems, goes into sweetening uh, soft drinks. That's just one of the many industrial uses of uh, the byproducts of soybean and corn production. Turning to Australian agriculture and the European Union with their carbon border levies. How does that impact on Australian farming? Well, Australian farming is focused government policy again and the policy of people like the National Farmers Federation are that we should focus our agriculture on exports, not feeding Australians, particularly growing bulk commodities, wheat, barley, oats and so on, for export Canola is another one that's big time at the moment and indeed the, the price of uh, canola has gone through the roof because there's been a shortage elsewhere in the world. Most of our canola exports actually go to Europe because we're a, um, largely a uh, GM-free canola producer. The farmers have to 
guarantee that they don't chop down more forests to grow this bulk crop. The market in Europe has become very lucrative, very large, and Australian farming is really dependent on its ability to export, particularly to the European Union, because of our GM-free status. The North Americans, particularly Canada and the USA, are mostly blocked from exporting their raw materials, particularly their canola, into that market because they're using genetically manipulated varieties. And the European Union is uh, not keen on buying those because, again, although the vast majority of our um, canola exports go into biofuel production, the byproducts of that can then be fed into the animal feed market without any concerns uh, because it's genetically manipulated. And we get premium prices for that as well. This has distorted production priorities in Australia. We're on this bandwagon of export-export instead of making the priority feeding Australians and feeding Australians well. Uh, We talked a minute ago about hunger and food insecurity around the world. And what we see in Australia as well as a result of the current approach to agriculture is that 1.5 million Australians, particularly a very large number of them children, are food insecure, are dependent on charity or some other means of getting food onto their table. They can't always do that. So I think food security for Australians should be the number one government policy. And now the priorities that the agriculture sector and the federal government have set of exporting as much as possible and getting that foreign currency is starting to come a little bit unraveled as well. Because as you mentioned in your question, the European Union is now going ahead with a new policy, which is putting levies on their imports on the basis of how those imports of corn, soybean, canola, and so on, contribute to carbon in the atmosphere. The carbon-intensive production from Australia may in future attract these kinds of levies and will make the products, of course, less profitable than they are at the moment. It's also being applied to other industrial materials such as aluminium, steel and cement, which we also export. And the European Union is saying agriculture and these um, minerals and uh, raw materials for industry are in the future going to attract basically tariffs on the basis of their contribution to global climate change. And Australia needs to really get busy thinking about how it's going to deal with that if we're going to continue to be so dependent on basically mining our earth, growing these bulk commodity crops, using very intensive industrial methods, high inputs of fertiliser, pesticides and herbicides in order to create a product that degrades our soils and water in order to send these overseas. The Australian agriculture industry and the Australian government at the moment being rather resistant to the idea that they're going to have to shape up. It's a bit like ScoMo taking a piece of coal into the parliament. They've got their blinkers on. They can't see that carbon abatement is the business of the world. Global climate change is now 
clearly established in all our trade and other relationships with other countries, these issues are going to come up. We can't go to um, uh, the global climate change meetings and simply say nothing, just blah on about how wonderful our programs are and how well we're doing without also expecting that people like the Europeans are going to come here and look very hard at our agricultural practices and uh, decide whether or not we're uh, being responsible producers, that we're not contributing dramatically to global climate change. If we aren't behaving ourselves properly, then those levies and tariffs will go on to those commodities, and it's going to be a very, very different ball game in the future. We need to move on to new systems, regenerative agriculture systems, uh, organic practices, lower use of um, synthetic chemicals, and we're going to have to behave very differently in our agricultural production in order to satisfy those rather higher standards than our own government that is captive to the coal and oil industries uh, is prepared to come to itself. This is only going to happen, of course, if the Australian community calls out the government and uh, says we've got to do something different. That means respecting the environment, respecting our soils and water, not simply mining Australia for export commodities. We need that new paradigm in place quickly because industrial agriculture will ultimately collapse and uh, we need to get onto the bandwagon of being regenerative and organic, lower impact, particularly on the global environment than we are at the moment. Which are the countries that are doing the right thing? Well, the countries of the European Union, I guess, are in the vanguard on this. But, of course, the countries, there are 52 of them in Africa, for instance, that are not committed to the high-input industrial food and commodity production model are also using more traditional means. Certainly, you know, from time to time, particularly when there's some natural disaster, like a drought, or flooding or some other event happens, uh, some countries in Africa are vulnerable. But on the whole, they are having much less impact on the global environment than the high input uh, industrial agriculture systems that countries like Canada, USA and Australia use. And yet we see that um, the uh, Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa, which is was conceived originally in 2006 by Bill Gates and the Rockefeller Foundation, which is still funded by them, is pushing on with throwing Africans off their land, implementing very much the North American model of industrial agriculture, huge machinery, patented seed, intensive fertilizer and chemical pesticide use, the appropriation of water, which is a scarce commodity around the world, into the agricultural systems, that's the wrong track to go on. We see the influence of the Gates Foundation there uh, in trying to say that we should continue business as usual, essentially selling those high-tech, basically American products, seed, fertilizer and chemicals, machinery, Uh, particularly the new drones, machinery and artificial intelligence, which 
CSIRO is saying is going to be the way ahead for Australian agriculture as well as genetically manipulated seed, that the sale of these input systems from the developed countries into places like Africa is going to be an absolute disaster. Millions of people thrown off their land as has happened in places like Latin America that I just described a moment ago. The dispossession, the taking of power over the way that food is produced. We need a new model. What people like the um, agricultural research, uh, foreign research arm should be doing is to help African producers to maintain and improve their existing systems and not commit them to the high-tech, high-input, high-carbon output and failing industrial systems that Gates and others are trying to sell into their markets. Um, It's not the way to go. They're doing okay at the moment, but they do need, as all systems do, to be improved using better data, better information, better strategies for managing uh, the scarce resources of, of good soil and water in the world. These are the things, ultimately, that are going to feed the world, not genetically manipulated crop seeds, not genetically manipulated animals. There are none of those at the moment, and they are a disaster. The artificial intelligence, the drones, the huge machinery, uh, the chemicals, the synthetic fertilizers, these are the way of the past, not the future. We need to get off that treadmill and back to seeing work collaboratively through ecologically sustainable systems and to regenerate the soils and the waters that are needed to produce the food that is going to feed uh, the human population of the world. And meanwhile, of course, not doing it at the expense of biodiversity because those uh, high-intensity systems have been the driver in Australia, for instance, of the huge number of extinctions of uh, native species that we've seen over the last uh, 200 years that Europeans have been in Australia. We can't keep going as we are. We mustn't keep going as we are. And we need people to start speaking up for other ways of feeding the world. Just very briefly, Bob, because these are topics that we've spoken about for the last couple of months. It's the, um, the labelling of irradiated fruit and vegetables and the upcoming mitochondrial law reform bill. The irradiated uh, foods are starting to be out in the supermarkets. Um, the first shipment of irradiated Australian tomatoes is now on sale in New Zealand, for instance. There are labelling regulations, but since the SANS uh, approved the irradiation and principle of all fruits and vegetables earlier in the year, now it comes down to labelling, and it's going to depend on the vigilance of shoppers. There is labelling required, on anything that's been irradiated, which means that it's a fruit or a vegetable that could have been exposed to up to 1.5 to 10 million X-ray equivalents of energy in order to kill the larvae of insects such as Queensland fruit fly. In the market, these will likely be presented as though they were fresh. Even though the food becomes sterile, uh, it can contain uh, radiation residues because of the treatment fruits and vegetables that are actually quite old will still look presentable 
even though their nutritional value may have dramatically declined. We need people out there in shopping land to start asking the supermarkets and the fruit and veggie stores, what are you going to do about labelling the irradiated fruits and vegetables? Are they going to be in your fresh fruit and veggie section? Are they going to have a proper notice on them so that people know what has happened? Giving that information to shoppers so they can make informed choices. But it does mean people speaking up, asking, what are you doing about irradiated fruits and vegetables? We'd love to hear what people get by way of reply because I think the retail industry is very poorly prepared for this new innovation. As far as the mitochondrial law reform bill is concerned, well, it's still got the same problems and we need people to be contacting their federal MP and the senators in Victoria to say, please vote against the bill. Vote no to the mitochondrial bill when it comes up for debate, both in the House of Representatives and the Senate, because those individuals are going to be personally responsible. Parties have all decided that this is a discussion which has got so many ethically, socially and scientifically contentious and unresolved problems that all the MPs and senators will be given a personal conscience vote rather than having to toe the party line. The bill is really bad news in that it would allow the um, deliberate manipulation of human genes uh, of the germline. That's to say the eggs and sperm, which will be passed on to future generations. Uh, it has fine intentions to try to, to prevent a particular disease, but the parents who want to use this, and it is high risk, very uncertain what its outcome will be, seem to be obsessed with having their own biological child, whereas they've got plenty of other options um, of having children, which will be much safer and surer of not uh, creating a new generation of kids suffering mitochondrial disease. It's very important that people ask their MP and the senators in Victoria, and there are 12 of them, to vote no when the mitochondrial law reform bill comes up. If they want more information about it, contact me, 0449 766 and I'll be happy to brief anyone who's interested and being engaged in that particular campaign. Do take up that offer from Bob Phelps. Victoria, to keep us safe, we know what to do. There are only five reasons to leave home. Shopping for food and supplies that you need. Exercise, both within five kilometres of your home or as close to home as possible. Care and caregiving. Authorised work or education if you can't do it from home. Getting vaccinated as soon as you're eligible. Masks are mandatory indoors and outdoors, and if you have any symptoms, get tested. For the latest updates, go to coronavirus.vic.gov.au. Authorised by the Victorian Government Melbourne, a 3CR supporter. armed states are talking big and spending up with no intention to disarm. The Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons provides a pathway out of this mess, and it's up to us to get our government on board. Tune in to ICANN's Ban School to learn more 
and be part of History in the Making. It's five online sessions from June to September. Check it out and enrol at icanw.org.au forward slash band school. That's icanw.org.au forward slash band school. The international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons is a 3CR supporter. And now the second part of my interview with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. And he's talking about the upcoming referendum in New Caledonia. There was a great deal of concern, though, that they wouldn't have been ready for it. That's still a, a big issue. And uh, one of the problems is, you know, this has all been done in, in pandemic, where there are quarantine restrictions, where there has been some concern about community transmission in New Caledonia. The logistics of holding a referendum are quite complex in this sort of situation. Imagine in Australia, if we had to have a, a national referendum on, uh, say, a voice for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the parliament to try and do that in the midst of the, the global pandemic is understandably challenging. And it raises real, real questions you know, will people clear to La Mer Patrie, you know, the French motherland, uh, at a time of global economic chaos um, and a, a level of uncertainty about the future where French financial subsidies and so on are very important in the economy up until now? Or will people say, look, this is the ultimate time that we need to determine our own affairs. We need to control our own affairs. You know, just in, in the last couple of weeks, this has been symbolised by a debate over laws uh, relating to uh, hotel quarantine. And this uh, legal debate, while it sounds a bit complex, is actually a symbolic question about whether the people of New Caledonia can determine their own well-being security uh, at a time of enormous health and economic challenges. What happened is that New Caledonia established a fairly rigorous hotel quarantine system, <laughs> more rigorous than Australia's, um, indeed, at the beginning, you had to spend two weeks in a hotel and one week in your own home under quarantine um, as a way of controlling people arriving with, with the virus. Some French people arriving from Paris have objected to being locked up in hotel quarantine, hanging, saying, we're part of France, um, we're travelling from one part of France to another part of Paris, why should we be locked up in hotel quarantine? And the government of New Caledonia is saying, hang on, hang on, we are a non-self-governing territory. We're a colony of France recognised by the UN. We have the right to determine health and quarantine you know, for our own country. There are French laws that guarantee the liberty of public movement, what they call public freedoms. So you should have the right to assembly, the right to move around and so on. And it's a debate that's happening all around the world about lockdowns and the rights and wrongs of lockdowns. French nationals are claiming that the French laws on public liberties, public freedom, should override the quarantine that New Caledonia wants to run to protect this small Pacific country. That sort of symbolises for me the tension between do you accept the laws and regulations of the administering power or do you accept your own laws and your own priorities? And this is being battled out in the courts. Uh, it's gone to the highest constitutional court in France and uh, that decision won't be heard quickly but is, is a real symbol of this, this debate about whether you can um, run your own affairs. I'd imagine the French government is on its, on its toes about this. 
Absolutely. And look, one of the things we've seen under the Macron government is a, a, a real crackdown and a real hardening of its position on uh, this process. As I said before, the, the previous referenda held in 2018 and 2020, by and large, were accepted by all parties as uh, free and fair. They accepted the results. There were major, major battles for many years over uh, who can vote and uh, the registration for many people, poor people, squatters and so on, found it difficult to, to get registered to vote for the referendum. But by and large, both supporters and opponents of independence accepted the results of the 2018 and 2020 votes. This final vote, however, in um, December this year, the date was picked unilaterally by the French government, not out of a consensus between all political parties or major political forces in New Caledonia. And that's caused a lot of anger that France is driving this through. We've also seen a major shift in France's, you know, appointments of senior officials in French Polynesia. I'll give you a couple of examples. The French High Commissioner for many years was a guy called Thierry Latast. Uh, very interesting guy. I've interviewed him on a number of occasions. Very a charming man and a you know, strong supporter of the French Republic, believes that New Caledonia should stay within the French Republic, but an official who knows a lot about New Caledonia, who's been working uh, with people in New Caledonia in a variety of roles over many, many years. He was replaced earlier this year by a new guy called Patrice Faure. Monsieur Faure is a former military officer, uh, had served as a defence advisor, defence attaché in the uh, Office of the Overseas Minister for France, and also did a stint with the DGSE um, Intelligence Service. That's the French uh, Secret Service. Uh, so this is a guy who's come out of a military and intelligence background, very different sort of character to, to La Taste. Just in the last week, there's been a major furor in the, the media in uh, both France and New Caledonia, where the recent appointment in July of a new commander for the gendarmerie, which is the French paramilitary police force deployed in New Caledonia. There's about 850 uh, gendarmes, uh, French gendarmes in New Caledonia. Uh, these are both uh, gendarmes mobiles, who are sort of part of the interior ministry, almost a military uh, force as much as a police force. This new guy uh, who was uh, uh, promoted in, uh, into the job in July um, has been widely criticised because he was convicted in May this year of gender-based violence against his wife and children. Uh, he was, uh, was found guilty of criminal offences um, earlier this year. Uh, and so his appointment, his promotion to head the police force has caused a real backlash from women's groups, uh, particularly from Kanak women, but more broadly than that. And indeed, in the last uh, week, a number of senior anti-independence politicians uh, have come out to call for the removal of this guy, for, that he be sent back to, to France and not uh, head the gendarmerie in, uh, in New Caledonia <laughs> at a crucial time where the police are going to play a role in maintaining order, so-called, um, in the lead-up. It's a worrying feature of uh, Macron's France. President Macron has really uh, turned out the police forces in France to crack down on dissent and opposition. 
Oh, there's a wonderful film on it, the Melbourne International Film Festival, a documentary about the violence that's been seen in the streets against things like the Gilets Jaunes movement, the Yellow Vest movement, which was from 2019-2020 a popular you know, movement opposing authoritarian government, opposing austerity policies brought forward by President Macron. And there was literally street fighting between the Gilets Jaunes and the French riot police across many parts of Paris. There's also a big mobilisation around the equivalent of Black Lives Matters. People from the African, uh, Arab, uh, Maghrebian uh, communities in uh, France complaining about disproportionate and often illegal violence by police officers against the black communities, the Arab communities in France. And that sort of violence has been going on for a long time in uh, working class communities, in migrant communities in France. And the Gilets Jaunes really showed it spilling out into the largely white protest movement uh, that was there. As many black commentators in France have said, we were the guinea pigs for the sort of techniques of violent police repression that has been unleashed. So what's happening in New Caledonia is part of a much bigger picture about a fairly authoritarian turn by the French government. And part of the reason for this is President Macron is going to elections next April. His um, term as president uh, is, is due to end and he's running for re-election uh, in presidential elections that begin in May, which will be followed closely by the elections for the French National Assembly, their national parliament, um, sometime before June next year. The main competitor for Macron is uh, Marine Le Pen, the leader of the Rassemblement National, the the rebadged uh, National Front, the extreme right uh, neo-fascist party, some would say. So Macron is uh, putting on a, a tough face to try and win over conservative voters And so you see both domestically and within the French overseas dependencies, uh, Macron is is using both carrot and stick to try and woo voters towards his uh, re-election. We'll talk again, Nick. Thanks as always, Jan. I look forward to speaking again. We certainly will. There's plenty happening in the Pacific. That's Nick McClellan. There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. With Facebook stripping content, it's a timely reminder to focus on the communication channels and platforms that the community controls. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new t-shirt or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter, at 3CR, and Instagram, at 3CR Melbourne. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855am. Keep in touch, 3cr.org.au. I'm speaking now with Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees, and the issue is compliance rather than justice. Stuart, this is a tale of two cities or two countries, but it's also an expose of the lack of justice in both. And I'm referring to the High Court in both UK and Australia. In the Westminster system, both here in the UK, desperate people often turn to these institutions as a last resort for justice, as you would expect in other courts of the land, but not so in the High Court 
Why should these courts be different? Well, first of all, it's mostly invisible. It's mostly inaccessible. What goes on there is a mystery to, I would think, 95% of the population. Holding powerful institutions and people accountable means that they have to be visible and accessible, and that that doesn't happen. I mean, there's a sort of reverence for the word high court. I'm thinking particularly of Australia at the moment. They live and work in amazing buildings for a start that look like fortresses. There's a sort of misplaced optimism about what the high court can do. That has occurred with the rise of authoritarianism. We had high hopes that the high court would be the... um, you know, the stopgap or put the brake on things. But also, surely it's the people who have the power to appoint the judges to these courts. That's true, although the, the question about whether the judiciary or the parliament, I mean, who's at fault here? I mean, it's quite clear in, in the one of the cases that I cite, the judges could have acted in the interests of justice and not in the interests of the parliament in that 4-3 vote, for example. When we talk about judges, one assumes they've got autonomy, but in fact, look, the key issue is unless we had a bill of rights that says that these laws you've made are, are invalid, then we're in this tug of war constantly between the judiciary and the parliament. And all the time you've got a a sort of Morrison, Hawke, Dutton-led parliament, and then punishment, revenge, authoritarianism dominates. Can you expand on that 4-3 vote? Yeah, OK. Well, there was a, a stateless uh, Palestinian. He was stateless. He was regarded as a non-citizen who came here by boat. can't remember how many years ago. He'd spent three years in, in detention, merely for being stateless, a non-citizen. Then he was allowed into the community with no entitlement to work, no Medicare coverage. A federal court had um, made that ruling. And then he was refused a visa. His name is Al-Kateb. Al-Kateb. He was refused a visa. So he went, they put him back in detention. And then the argument was that if he couldn't have a visa... He couldn't really be deported. So um, the court said, well, if he can't be deported, he will have to remain in detention. So they voted four to three virtually that he could remain in detention forever. That's what they voted. And there's been an argument today between certain senior barristers and me about, well, well, the court couldn't the court is only influenced by the politicians. And I said to him, that's, that's got to be an absolute nonsense. The court could have voted four to three in his favour and let him free, or they could have voted seven to nothing in his favour. But they chose to vote four to three against him. And my argument is that it seems to me that the, the kind of uh, revengeful culture towards asylum seekers and refugees that has been built up in this country influenced the four judges who voted that way. And of course, this decision not only impacts on this person, but in the future for anyone else who comes up to the court. Yeah, well, I mean, it, 
it becomes a sort of handy legal precedent. You can see now in the cruel attitude that Morrison has towards Afghan refugees who are here on bridging visas, he almost shouts uh, at his press conference that he will never allow them to stay in this country. You'd think, given what uh, the tragedy of Afghanistan, that he would have a bit of some Christian empathy, but he doesn't seem to know what that is. And of course, then you have Thanika. Yeah, I mean, again, you've got a four-year-old child who's been used as a pawn in a political tug of war in which the, this wretched government wants to beat its chest and sh show how strong it is towards weak people. Even the former Chief Justice of Australia, Gerard, Sir Gerard Brennan, said this was a massive cruelty. It looked to me as though they could have, they could have allowed her appeal for a visa. They could have said, you know, we're, we're big, brave men. I'm not sure whether anybody can um, appeal against a high court ruling, except what, what happens is this wretched government, and wretched is too gentle an adjective in some ways, would rush to pass more legislation overruling what a high court might say if it had been generous. The cruelty, let alone the, let alone the expense, the human cost to this family is terrible because they, they, they don't seem to have the courage to say, here is an exception to the rule, this family should go home to Villalia, however I uh, pronounce it. So you're saying that the, the High Court <coughs> complies with government and not justice. Is that just this government or has this been happening for quite a while? It's happening all over. It's happening in Britain, certainly. It's happening in other European countries. Democracy is at stake. The rule of law is at stake uh, because we've got this sort of authoritarian populism dominating. And I know the lawyers will say, ah, yes, but it's, you know, it's the law. It's about being black and white and interpreting the rules. My argument is that they grow up in a certain culture. You know, I spent enough of my life in courts, including three years in the Old Bailey, the central criminal court in, in London, similar courts in Canada and the States, to know that there's a certain culture that prevails that affects what can be done. Of course, there, of course, there are laws and there are rules, but I'm arguing that there's a, there's a, there's, we're building a culture which makes it very difficult to pursue justice. If the inquiry that Frank Brennan and Mary Kostakidis conducted some years ago into the desirability of the Human Rights Act, if that had been successful, if if unfortunately the um, the Labour state government in, in New South Wales had, hadn't you know, blocked it, we'd be in a different position. We desperately need a human rights act. That's the point. But surely, Stuart, England and the countries in Europe have a Bill of Rights or something similar, yet you're saying that they're heading the same way. Well, yeah, because they ride roughshod over the rules. I mean, Britain, Britain, of course, has extracted itself from Europe because they didn't like the, among other things, they didn't like the rulings of the European Court of Justice. But the, if you look at the bill that's going through the House of Commons in Britain about any refugee who manages to float in a dinghy across the English Channel and is regarded as an illegal is immediately 
prone to three years in prison. In other words, the Refugee Convention is of no consequence, let alone a, a Bill of Rights, because authoritarian parliaments are saying that we, we know how to abuse power, and that is what we mean by government. And we need to be rescued from that culture. Talk about the High Court and Julian Assange. Strictly speaking, it hasn't got to the, um, it, well, it's, it's occurring what are called the Royal Courts in, in London. The issue there is that the judge, Judge Baratza, ruled that he couldn't be extradited because he was in danger of taking his own life. In other words, his, his mental health was at stake and he wouldn't be mentally strong enough to withstand 175 years in an American jail. If you please, the High Court then allowed the, the revengeful U.S. government to appeal against the decision that he couldn't be extradited. They've tried to um, deride the judgment that his mental health was at stake, that um, they tried to argue via an appalling woman, a barrister, who will do anything for money, a woman called Claire Dobbin, what John Pilger calls the hard gun, has been derisory about Julian Assange's health, saying that it's you know, largely faked in order to try to win the case on behalf of the, of the United States government. That's the issue. in the fact that the, the High Court allowed it for the Americans to have their appeal. In other words, the Americans are saying, we must have revenge. Well, whatever happens, we must have revenge. We can't afford to lose. And, of course, this business of of powerful people trying to deny that the powerless defendant is faking their health. That has a parallel here. When this full of herself, Karen Andrews, the Minister for Home Affairs in Morrison's government, said that little Tanika Muragapan wasn't as seriously ill as people said she was, faking it in order to, to generate public sympathy. I mean, the, the cruelty oozes out of their pores. And as you said, justice is not on the agenda. Somehow, I mean, I've spent enough time in courts of law for nobody to say, well, what if, can we pause for a minute and talk about what would be just, what would be fair? I remember when we were prosecuted at Sydney University by an Israeli lawyer who took action on the grounds that we, had, that discriminated, we were anti-Semitic and discriminated against an, an academic from the Hebrew University. Eventually, the judge found for Jake Lynch and partly for myself on every possible ground. And then a friend of mine who was a big shot in the um, Civil Liberties Association of New South Wales said to me, wonderful, wonderful judgment, uh, the, the details, legally fascinating in, in your favour. I said, yes, but he didn't have anything to do with justice, did it? And he said, well, it's got nothing to do with justice. <laughs> so, in other words, the law in so many cases, has nothing to do with justice. That's um, offensive, in my view. I'd like you to quote German poet Bertolt Brecht, as you have in your paper. Brecht wrote the famous poem, The Bread of the People, it was called. And he said, justice is the bread of the people. And he also said, just as daily bread is necessary, so is daily justice. It must be breaked by the people every day, and it should be 
plentiful, wholesome, daily. In other words, just is, is the responsibility of all of us, not the prerogative of some privileged people playing legal, cultural, political games in august institutions. That's what he was saying. You know, it's the, it's the bread, it's the sustenance. It's what makes life worthwhile and possible. And without it, we are lost. And um, I interpreted him as saying, Tanika Muragapan and her family should be, re- should be given their freedom uh, and go back to Bilalea. And that the world, in fact, the Australian people should be extremely grateful to Julian Assange for what he's done, should be set free. The very opposite of what is happening. What was Bertolt Breck warning against? Well, he was warning against authoritarianism of every kind. He debunked, he opposed every kind of authoritarianism, whether it was communism, whether it was fascism, and even the authoritarianism in bureaucracies, which he regarded as mostly, you know, athletic and um, constipated. See that, for example, in the claims that Australia has been quickly processing the applications of Afghani interpreters and guards and so on to come to Australia. It looks like a complete pack of lies because of the the arthritic condition of the bureaucracy, which is something else to brag Pope Fanov, he was a great advocate for peace with justice. He was a great advocate for human rights. He was a great advocate for the arts and, in, and interpretations of freedom. Well, if the general public lose confidence in the law and bureaucracy, i.e. taking anything to a high court, where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us with, we've still got a democracy in this case, and it leaves us, it makes it imperative to get rid of Morrison and co, but to ensure that the alternatives have the courage of their convictions and, and speak about you know, redefining what you mean by politics. Because at the moment, I mean, there's, there's two choices before us. Either we continue with abusive uses of power in every context. One of the most obvious is domestic violence or abusive power by people like, you can see every the way Peter Dutton behaves every time he appears. We don't have to just go to um, Myanmar or to the Taliban to see that it's worse. That's one choice. We just say, well, that's easy. Men have done that all their lives. They've just told people to obey them. The alternative is to use power in a creative, imaginative, life-enhancing way that avoids this bullying one-dimensionality that's gone on for centuries. That's why we've had wars. That's why women and children are vulnerable. It's disproportionately about male power. I mean, if I, I got very annoyed with so-called experts on Afghanistan, some of whom are my friends, because they never tell me whether the Taliban ever had any sisters. And where are the sisters? Were all these guys born with beards on motorbikes? with never a sister in sight. And were all their mothers complete masochists in teaching them how to abuse women? None of these experts on Afghanistan ever tell me that. So where are we going to find the solution? We have to have what Joe Camilleri calls conversations at the crossroads. So the the real dilemma is how to influence the public with a different language, a different set of values, a different set of hopes. If the UN report on the state of the, of the planet 
is to be believed. We've only got about 10 to 12 years left. So there's a sense of urgency to find a different way of living. I mean, a different way of thinking, different way of living. That's partly, Jan, why I argued that it's amazing that all this time and effort is being used to punish a four-year-old Tamil girl and a very brave whistleblower journalist. While the world is burning and flooding, massive pandemic is killing billions. And yet, there we are in these institutions, courts and so on, playing around with people's lives. I mean, the, one of the major theme of the Universal Declaration is about a right to a life. I would have thought in the deliberations of the judges and the lawyers, that's precisely what they ought to be addressing, the right to a life. But I'm not prime minister. But you're an optimist? Look, I have to be because I don't want to despair. I mean, I, as soon as we finish this conversation, I'm going to write an article about the massive cruelty of Mr. Scott Morrison and the fact that he really is a bit of a psychopath. I mean, that's a strong charge, but a psychopath is somebody who has a complete inability to comprehend the feelings and sensitivities of other people. When you watch his behavior towards Afghani people here on bridging visas, you, my judgment would be easy to substantiate. Final words? Final words is um, let's get together face to face, but let's have more of the conversation because without the conversations, people are apt to believe that the major issue is whether there's a special on pork shops in Woolworths or Coles at the weekend. In other words, the task of going shopping or whether there's enough toilet rolls to last for a week becomes the agenda. That's not the agenda. The agenda is the survival of people and the animals and the planet and and a sense of justice for all of them, including you know, including insects. And Scott Morrison. The guy calls himself a Christian. I've never seen an interpretation of Christianity like the one he tries to um to represent. He needs to be called to account. The trouble is he's for years he's had the support of Sky News and other Murdoch media outlets. And have conned the public. I mean, you have to go to certain parts of Australia to realise there's only one point of view. You go to somewhere like central Queensland, and all you can buy is a courier mail, gives this top-down view of the world. We should be talking about socialism. What it means is fellowship. We were beginning to stumble towards it in the respect for having social distancing and trying to, to combat pandemic in that way. In other words more altruism, less selfishness. But I think that's probably too big a diet for one afternoon. All right. Well, we could start doing it <laughs> another time, Stuart. No, okay. No, love. It's, it's lovely to talk to you. And that was Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.